Thank you, Spencer. Good morning, friends. Great to see you today. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 9. Mark, excuse me, yeah. That was a test. (laughs) No, it wasn't, (laughs) unfortunately. Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. Let me read our passage before we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is God's uh, holy inerrant and authoritative word. May he bless what we've just read. And let's pause and ask for help uh, before we continue today. Now, Father, we bow before you. We place ourselves under the authority of your word. Uh, Even difficult texts like this one this morning, especially we come and we submit to what your word has to say to us. So strengthen us to do this especially today, give us hearing ears and seeing eyes that we can hear and understand your truth and absorb it uh, deep into our hearts. Transform us by your truth today. Strengthen me uh, to preach clearly and uh, carefully. Give me uh, my voice clarity and strength and my mind clarity as well. Father, be with us now. May Jesus, your son, be exalted in all that we do uh, from this time forward. We pray in his name. Amen. Some years ago, in the uh, eastern part of the United States, there was a tragic uh, train accident, commuter train accident. It's not working, Kate. Next slide. So uh, there was a train at the station, somewhat like you see pictured here, uh, full of students returning from school. It was stalled on a suburban uh, line uh, because of a mechanical failure. Uh, Another train, a second train, uh, referred to as the Limited, was also due to come through soon. And because of the mechanical failure of the one, a flagman was sent out uh, to warn the other, to warn the engineer of the second train to avert a rear-end collision. The students were oblivious to 
the seriousness of their predicament and they did what students do, laughed and chatted on uh, the train uh, while uh, the engineers worked on the problem. And, and suddenly the whistle of the limited, that second train, was heard. And on came this heavy train and crashed into the local as had been feared. Uh, the effect was tragic. Uh, the engineer of that second train, the engineer of the limited, thank you, sir, uh, saved his own life by jumping from, the, from his engine at the final moments. Soon afterward, he was required to account for his part in this tragedy. And now before a panel, uh, a curious discrepancy in testimony occurred. He was asked, this engineer of the second train, did you not see the flagman warning you to stop? He replied, I saw him, but he waved a yellow flag. And I assumed everything was well and went on, though I did slow down. The flagman himself was called to testify, and he was asked, what flag did you wave? A red flag, he said, but he went by me, the second train, like a shot. Are you sure it was red? Yes, absolutely. Both insisted they were telling the truth. It was demonstrated that neither was colorblind. Finally, the flagman was asked to produce the flag itself as evidence, and after some delay was able to do so, and then the mystery was explained. It had been red, but it had been exposed to the elements, the weather, for so long that all the red was bleached out. It had faded to a dirty yellow. There is no mistaking Jesus' warnings in this passage for yellow flags. Because of the shocking images and graphic language that he uses in our passage, it is clear that Jesus is waving red flags on the way to Jerusalem. He waved these four red flags as part of his disciples' ongoing preparation. And these four red flags were an important part of their formation and training as disciples. As, and they are an important part of our formation and training as disciples as well. What warnings did they need to heed? And what warnings do you and I also need to observe? Well, the first red flag that Jesus waved was about the apostasy of believers. Now, you and I don't use the word apostasy very much. Um, apostasy refers to someone turning their back on their faith or falling away from Christ. Uh, that's the meaning of apostasies, and this is about believers falling away from their faith. There are three questions that uh, we need to ask about this first red flag. To begin with, 
what does Jesus mean by little ones? Uh, to whom is Jesus referring? Look at verse 42 again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. At first glance, it sounds like we're hearing uh, a warning about children being mistreated, but that's not the case. Right before this, up in verse uh, 36, last Sunday, Jesus took a little child in his arms, not just to, to talk about children, but to represent and speak of anyone who was thought of as unimportant and insignificant by the world's standards. Little ones here in verse 42 is, is therefore a reference to disciples of any age, but especially those Christians who are immature, those that are young in the faith. This is how John frequently refers to immature Christians, as well as Paul. Uh, John refers to them in 1 John, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. And then uh, the next, or a few verses later, children, it is now the last hour, and as you have heard that any Christ is coming, and, and then at the very end of the book, little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's, it's an endearing term. And so the little ones that Christ mentions here in verse 42 are other disciples, other followers of Christ, especially those that are young in their faith. So this is our first question. This brings us to another uh, that we need to answer. What does Jesus mean by causing them to sin? What's he referring to? What does he mean by this phrase, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin? Well, the word sin is, is the Greek word scandalizo, from which we get our English word scandalize. It can mean cause someone to sin, as is translated by the ESV uh, here, but it's probably more than that. This term can also mean causing someone to be led astray from their faith. And it can even mean causing someone to fall away from their faith um, completely. And it's probably one of these last two senses that Jesus has in mind, and we, we can conclude that because of the seriousness of the judgment that he goes on to name. More than just causing someone to sin, this probably refers to causing an immature believer to fall away from their faith. Now, of course, we can't cause them to lose their faith, uh, but it's when you and I cause someone to stumble and fall uh, that their lives become unfruitful and, and perhaps prove that they were never genuine believers to begin with. So as elders and as uh, the teacher of a discipleship class, as parents, uh, how careful we need to be around those that are young in their faith. How careful we must be not to discourage them or tempt them or, or cause them to stumble in sin. Listen to Dr. R.C. Sproul. 
This warning puts an awesome burden on leaders in the church. Pastors, teachers, and others in positions of authority need to be quite careful not to make simple Christians stumble in their faith. I had this experience as a college freshman, and then again when I went to seminary, where the professors told us that if we believed in the substitutionary atonement of Christ, we were fools. We saw the Orthodox faith systematically attacked every single day. I dread to think of the future of those teachers and leaders who go about this task of trying to undermine the faith of believers in Christ. So this is our second question. What did Jesus mean by causing them to sin? He means causing them to stumble in their faith and, and perhaps stumble altogether away from Christ. There's one third phrase that's uh, very curious that we need to find out about. A third question we need to ask is, what does Jesus mean by having a millstone hung about the neck? What does that refer to? Well, the rest of verse 42 uh, goes on to say, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Keep in mind, he's, he's addressing his disciples, his 12 men, which we would call Old Testament believers. These are not unbelievers, uh, with the exception of Judas, of course. Um, millstones, like the one he refers to, great millstones, they were used in the ancient world uh, to grind grain into flour. The stone was so heavy that a donkey was used to turn the stone in a circle, uh, crushing the grain and the flour. Remember, this is also what Samson uh, was required to push uh, for the Philistines. Jesus describes this in a uh, bizarre turn. Uh, he describes the offending party the one who's caused this fellow believer to stumble in his faith as wearing this millstone around his neck like a collar. Uh, it, it would have been a gruesome image to the disciples. And then Jesus goes on to say that the offending party should be thrown into the sea. And just consider what a horrific death uh, this would be not unlike, um, as you might hear on a TV show now and then, someone being fitted with cement shoes uh, by the mob. Uh, it's kind of like that. Uh, the sea was considered a place of terror and chaos in Jewish poetry. And it's there in the sea, on the bottom of the sea, that the offender would remain uh, somehow attached to this millstone, first to be drowned in the sea and then to be consumed uh, by sea creatures. It would have shocked his men to hear this. His disciples now is who this is for. The only thing going for this, it, it was, a, it was a, at least a, a better way of dying. Notice he says uh, there, uh, it would be better for him and we ask, better than what? Jesus doesn't finish the comparison. He, he left it dangling. 
But based on what he goes on to say in the verses that follow, he probably meant that it would be better for the offender to experience a quick death, even if it's a horrible death in the sea, than to face the judgment that God himself would later dispense. And so all of a sudden we're presented with uh, an offense uh, and we're presented with just how seriously God regards uh, the sin of leading someone astray, of, of causing the apostasy of a fellow believer, of causing uh, a fellow Christian to stumble uh, or, or fall away from the faith. It is something God takes very seriously and we see this because of the severe measures that he uses in response to this. And again, this is not addressed to, to wicked men, with Judas accepted, of course. This is written to um, people we would call believers, Old Testament believers. So answering our third question, the millstone is, describes a, a quick but horrible death. So this is, this is the first red flag. Boy, is it red. What a warning to his men. Uh, and what a warning uh, for those of us who teach uh, about causing other believers to stumble and fall away. And we saw, answered rather three questions regarding this, who the little ones were, what it means to cause them to sin, it means to cause them to stumble, and lastly, what the millstone image represents. This leads us to a second red flag. The second red flag uh, that we find is the necessity of holiness. And, and we hear this warning in verses 43 through 48. Uh, look at this again with me in your copy of God's word. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Three points uh, in particular I want to mention to you here. And the first thing I want to point out is the missing verses. Now, you may have not noticed anything missing, and so you might be surprised to tell you that the ESV does not contain verses 44 and 46. And perhaps you were reading along with me and were thinking, what gives? Uh, if you have a New King James or uh, some other version, those probably will be included. Uh, what happened to verse 44 and 46? Well, it might surprise you to hear that the Greek manuscripts that translators used, they didn't contain 100% of the New Testament. They actually contained 110% of the New Testament. Now, how do 
do we wind up with 110% of the New Testament if we only started at 100% to begin with? Here's the reason. It's because the people who copied those manuscripts, for example, uh, the man who copied uh, the Gospel of Mark. I'm not talking about Mark. I'm talking about somebody later on who makes a copy of Mark, makes a handwritten copy of Mark to, to help Mark be spread to different churches and in different regions of the world. A copyist. Well, those copyists, they didn't tend to leave things out. They tended to add a word here and there. They wanted, they wanted the text of the Bible to be clear, and so as they're writing, they might just add a word or substitute a word, uh, you know, the, the pronoun him with uh, the name of Christ. And you can see that in um, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through some will have Christ who strengthens me. The original probably said I can do all things through him who strengthens me, and and thereby, to, to clarify who Paul's talking about, they inserted the word Christ. So they didn't tend to leave things out, drop things out. They, they were trying to be helpful, and in their thinking, it was better to add or replace a word which would help make the text clear. And so this is how we wound up, not with 100% of, of the New Testament, but with 110% of the New Testament. And so what scholars, there are men who study these, these things uh, and study them in depth. Scholars have concluded that to make today's passage clearer to the reader, a copyist took verse 48 and inserted it after verse 33 and again after verse 45 to help it be clearer. The editors of the ESV, by leaving those two verses out are trying to point out to us that this, what we have printed in the ESV is probably the original text of Mark. And they say so in a footnote down at the bottom. Uh, some manuscripts add verses 44 and 46. Uh, so this is probably the original. But that's a stumbling point, and maybe you didn't notice it, and maybe that was all for me wasting my breath on you, but that's where verses 44 and 46 went. But this is likely the original text of Mark. Well, not only uh, this, does this deal with missing verses, it talks about missing eternal glory. I mean, missing heaven. Uh, Jesus graphically warns his disciples that unrestrained sin, that sin that goes unchecked in their lives, has eternal consequences. Um, very, very red flag. Notice the contrast that he makes in these verses with eternal life on the one hand and eternal torment on the other. So starting with verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, and that is a reference to eternal life. Better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Eternal life 
is contrasted with eternal torment. And the same in verse 45. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, again, eternal life, lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell, the place of eternal torment. You see them put side by side again for a third time in verse 47. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God. That's the future sense of the kingdom of God that will be revealed at Christ's return. The kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, the place of eternal torment. So three times we see eternal life contrasted with eternal torment. Uh, this place of torment, the term, is actually the word Gehenna. Perhaps you've heard of this. Uh, this word originally referred to the Valley of Hinnom, which was located on the southern corner of the city of Jerusalem. In ancient Israel, this was a notorious place. It's where kings Ahaz and Manasseh sacrificed their children to the pagan god Molech uh, in this deep ravine. Uh, this, of course, was condemned by the Lord. Jeremiah, in particular, spoke against it, and it was this practice was finally brought to an end by good King Josiah. And to make sure that children were never sacrificed in the valley of Hinnom again, he desecrated the valley. He, he turned it into Jerusalem's garbage dump. And this is not only where Israel deposited its garbage, uh, this valley, but it is also where they deposited the bodies of dead animals and even the bodies of criminals. And to keep the dump from overflowing, the garbage was continually burned and kept burning by incoming trash. And uh, uh, also, uh, kind of grossly, maggots would feed on the rotting flesh in the dump. Eventually, the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, became a picture of the final punishment awaiting the ungodly. And this is where verse 48 comes from, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Listen to how Dr. Sproul sums it up. We have to understand these metaphors in terms of physical pain. The Bible teaches not only the resurrection of the bodies of the saints, but the resurrection of the bodies of the damned that they may be fit to receive their everlasting punishment in hell in a physical state. In hell, the worm does not die because the host is never consumed. In hell, the fire is never quenched, meaning the torment is constant. Hell, then, is a place of searing, unceasing pain. By use of these ghastly images, we readily admit these are ghastly uh, images. Jesus made it plain that hell is a terrible place. Now, this is not the way hell is thought of. Uh, I think one of Satan's outright 
lies, one of his most insidious lies, uh, you've heard this before. It's that hell is a place where unbelievers will party with their friends. Uh, and people are in, warned about the hell, and you often hear in response, well, at least all my friends will be there. Uh, and this concept has been reinforced and made popular in, in popular music. Let me mention one that came out when I was a freshman in college, still popular today, a song called Highway to Hell. Uh, and just a sample of what it says, living easy, loving free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing that I'd rather do. Going down, party time, my friends are going to be there too. That is a treacherous, treacherous lie. Unbelievers will not party with their friends in hell. It is a place of eternal conscious torment. But this red flag isn't being waved at unbelievers, is it? Who's it being waved at? Jesus is waving this flag at his men. And by extension, waving it at you and me. For if you allow sin to go unchecked in your life, if you allow sin to go unrestrained, passages like 1 John tell us that those who make a practice of sinning don't know the Lord. And the outcome for those who make a practice of, of sinning is this hell that I've just described. Gehenna, the valley of Hinnom where the worm does not die and the fires are not quenched. Jesus goes on, fortunately, to describe how we miss the unquenchable fire of hell. We've talked about missing verses, and then he's talked about missing eternal glory. And thirdly, he goes on to say, uh, he talks about missing body parts. Uh, look at this. This is the third thing I want to point out to you here. Uh, first, the hand in verse 43. Um, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And of course, the, the foot in verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. And then the eye in verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. The problem with these body parts that require this remedy is, is because of the effect they have on us spiritually. The problem in these verses with each of these body parts is they cause us to sin. You'll see that word pop up again, sin. The same word that we saw up in verse 42. Uh, and it, again, it's not just that they cause us to sin, they cause us to stumble. They cause us to fall spiritually. 
and they might even cause us to fail spiritually and fall away from the faith altogether, proving that we were not believers to begin with. There is a variety of opinion on what these body parts refer to. One of the simplest explanations, I believe it's probably the best explanation, is the hands represent the sinful things that we do. And the feet represent the sinful places we go. And the eyes represent the sinful things we see. It is also likely that together the hands, feet, and eyes are meant to represent the whole of our lives. Uh, They together refer to everything we do. And because of this effect that these body parts have on us, uh, because they can actually lead us to fall away from Christ, look at the radical step Jesus calls to take in each case. In verse 43, he calls us to cut off the, the offending hand. In verse 45, he calls us to cut off the offending foot. And again, 47 calls us to tear out the, the offending eye. Christ is not speaking literally here. Uh, He does not intend for any of his disciples to actually cut off their hand or foot or tear out their eye. We know this because this practice of self-mutilation is forbidden in the Old Testament. It was a a serious sin to mutilate your body, Deuteronomy 14.1, Leviticus 19.28. He would, Jesus would not have been contradicting Old Testament law and encouraging self-mutilation. Another reason we know that Jesus is not speaking literally is because removing these body parts does not remove sin. Sin does not originate in the hand or foot or eye. Sin originates where? In our heart. He said this back in chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, uh, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So if he's not speaking literally here, then what action is he calling his disciples to take when he says, cut it off, tear it out? He uses this graphic and intense language to point out that radical steps need to be taken to purge sin from our lives. He's pointing out the need for personal holiness in the most drastic of terms. Because after all, if we continue in sin... If we make a practice of sinning, in the long run we will prove, we will prove, if we can go on in sin, we will prove that we were never genuine believers to begin with. And this is the very thing we read in 1 John. Uh, Let me remind you, No, that's not it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the makes a practice. Please note that the way they've translated it here is uh, is excellent. 
Older versions say, whoever sins is of the devil. What the editors of the ESV are attempting to do here by translating it like this is to draw out the present tense of the verb uh, and point out that this refers to continuous action. I mean, after all, all of us sin and have sinned today and will sin this afternoon. Um, uh, but this refers to the specific ongoing practice of a particular sin, of sin not dealt with, of sin not restrained. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Uh, one Bible scholar sums this up uh, like this. The metaphor of amputation could hardly be more shocking. This is a matter of ultimate serious. Nothing less than eternal life or death is at stake. And so, friends, you've just got to hear this, that we cannot wink at sin. We cannot, you know, nudge somebody and say, don't worry, every, nobody's perfect. Well, that is true. But that doesn't mean that we allow sin to go unchecked in our lives. Because, and again, telling his 11 believing disciples, giving this red flag to them. Men, you can't let this go. You have to deal with this sin, uh, of course, by the power of God's Spirit. We would say on this side of the cross, uh, by, the God's, by the power of God's Spirit, you must, you must tear this sin out. You must remove this sin. And the implication is that pain might be involved. You have to tear out this sin that you cherish because quite literally, your eternity hangs in the balance. If you know Christ, you cannot keep on sinning. You cannot keep indulging a pet sin. You cannot keep on doing that thing you cherish. It must go. It must go. It must go. Do you have a pet sin? Are you involved in something that you know is wrong? Then I can only conclude I am preaching this message today for you, as well as myself. I must be. I don't like preaching messages like this where I have to say such direct and 
uncomfortable things. But if, if I am, it's because somebody here probably has a pet sin. Is that you? It's possible that you can't get rid of it by yourself. It's possible that that pet sin has become an addiction. They do sometimes. They consume us and we wonder, what in the world have I gotten myself into? And I cannot get out of it. Then that's what the body of Christ is for. Many, many of us have been there. That, that a pet sin turns into a monster. And we cannot, we cannot kill it on our own. So what I want to say to you is uh, I'll be down here at the end of the service. If you're comfortable talking to me, come and t tell me. Or call me in the week. If there's somebody else you're more comfortable with telling, tell them. Uh, any of our elders would be glad to talk to you about, about this. It's got to be dealt with. It's, it's got to be dealt with. You can't do it on your own. I would say to the rest of us here, we take sin so casually in our culture. Oh, man, the things that come over through our TV sets at night. Wow. Uh, friend, we can't wink at it. Uh, we can't take it lightly. We can't nurse it along and continue in it uh, if it causes us to stumble because our very eternity hangs in the balance. I don't know what it could be. It might be. It might be something that uh, uh, another person would consider harmless. It might be baseball. Could be football. Uh, could be guitars. I, I hate to say that one out loud. Wow. Could be children. Children treating them as idols. Making them the center of your universe. Was your kid meant to be the center of your universe? Never. Only God is meant to be the center of your universe. We have this bizarre habit in America of uh, killing our children or turning them into idols. There is a healthy middle ground, but we rarely arrive there. Oh, friend, please, please deal with this. A great Puritan pastor and theologian put it like this, and this is so worthy of being worn on a t-shirt. Be killing sin. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Sin will be killing you. I think another great lie of the enemy is that you can indulge in something and it, it won't harm you. Sin is like eating down death. It's insanity be killing sin or sin will be killing you I frankly I, I want to stop right there uh, I I want us just to leave thinking about this I take no pleasure and I, I I take no pleasure in I'm not trying to be melodramatic I I don't I, I 
I don't want to be melodramatic. I don't want to create a false sense of drama. I'm not trying to stir you up. Well, I guess I am and stir you up for holiness, to holiness. By waving the, by pointing out these red flags, not I'm not waving the red flags. Jesus himself is waving these red flags. And not at the wicked, not at unbelieving, not at an unbelieving crowd, but at his, at his 11 men who are believers. Again, Judas would be the exception, but still Judas is hearing this. Jesus is the one waving the flags, and I, I'm just telling you what he's doing. And so, friend, I, I pray that as his disciple, if you claim to be his disciple, if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, that you will take heed to this red flag that he is, he is waving and that you will slow down and stop the train and that you will uh, pursue, by his good spirit, pursue holiness and sanctification. So Christ Jesus, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ seated before me. Lord, that you would cleanse them of sin like this, like the ones you're talking about. I pray that by your good spirit that you would enable all of us, by your indwelling spirit, to, to purge out, cut off that hand or tear out that eye or take a very radical step to, to stop that form of sin in our lives. Uh, we need courage to do that. Do not let us cherish sin. Uh, do not let us make excuses. Father, please enable us to, to rip it out and be done with it. This warning is for your sons and daughters. So please help us to hear it. And Jesus, we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.